to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I am your host, Jackie Lupmon, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the Biden administration advising for booster shots contributing to global vaccine apartheid, China's efforts to combat income inequality with socialist redistribution of wealth and the legacy of racism in environmentalism. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to take your calls. But before we can move on, you know, one of the Afghanistan stories we didn't get to yesterday was the news that the U.S. administration has frozen accounts at American banks that hosted part of Afghanistan's national reserves, cutting off the Taliban's access to the money left over from the previous government. The Washington Post reported that Janet Yellen, Secretary of the U.S. Treasury and officials from the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control made the decision. And an anonymous source said that, quote, any central bank assets the Afghan government have in the United States will not be made available to the Taliban. International Monetary Fund data shows that the ousted Afghan government has $9.4 billion in national reserves, and they had that back in April of 2021 prior to the Taliban offensive. It's unclear, though, how much of it was kept in the coffers of U.S. banks. Washington also used to send $3 billion a year in financial assistance to the Afghan government. And yes, folks, this is in addition to the skids of shrink-wrapped cash that the CIA was handing out like church fans at a revival. But the anonymous source says that aid will likely stop. The spokesperson for the U.S. State Department noted that there has been no formal transfer of power to the Taliban, despite the Taliban being very much in control of the government right now. State Department claims that because Afghan President Ashraf Ghani fled the country without formally resigning, he fled the country in a car stuffed with so much cash that it was flying out of the windows, mind you, while Vice President Amrullah Saleh declared himself the acting president of Afghanistan in the absence of Ghani. I don't think the Taliban really cares about any of that, because not only does the Taliban now have control over the U.S. furnished military equipment left by the Afghan army, including some fighter jets and some combat helicopters and who knows how much munitions, but they have no shortage of funding and have never had a problem with that. Of course, aside from the initial startup funds from the CIA and the Pakistani secret police that created the Taliban in the first place, they have established funding that sets it up as an independent political and military entity. And this is according to a confidential report commissioned by NATO that was published by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in September 2020. According to this report, Mullah Yaqub, the son of the late Taliban spiritual leader Mullah Mohammed Omar and the current head of the group's financial operations, revealed that the Taliban wants to continue to, quote, exploit earning potential in regions under military control to enable the Taliban to operate without the need of outside financial, political or military support. What are those earning potentials? 
Well, the first thing people think of is what is often called the illicit drug trade, since Afghanistan produces over 80 percent of all the global opium supplies. And opium is, of course, the base that's needed for heroin, but it's also needed for morphine based pain medication. So while it's true that some of the money from poppy farming, the flower that opium is extracted from, goes to heroin manufacturing and the Taliban taxes the farming of poppies and the production of opium and heroin. But that same opium is used by pharmaceutical companies to produce pain medication. And yes, that has a direct impact on the opioid crisis right here in this country. But the bigwigs in Washington don't want to talk about that. Maybe one day we will. But anyway, there's mining, iron ore, marble, copper, gold, zinc, and other metals and rare earth mineral mining is lucrative business for the Taliban as they have a Stones and Mines Commission, they do, that extracts taxes from mining operations, big and small, and they had better pay or else. Also, the Taliban imposes taxes on other industries such as media, telecommunications and development projects funded by international aid. Drivers are also charged for using highways in Taliban controlled regions and shopkeepers pay the Taliban for the right to do business. Now, of course, we in the West would call this extortion. But you know what? Every time I look at the taxes I pay on my phone and my Internet service, I don't see how that's different when the Taliban does it. I don't know. The long and short of this is that the Taliban doesn't need the money left over from the former government. They don't need outside funding or support. And they've been setting it up that way for years. The NATO report from 2020, might I remind you, 2020 notes that, quote, unless global action is taken, the Taliban will remain a hugely wealthy organization with a self-sustaining funding stream and outside support from regional countries. Well, here we are. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has just advised that booster shots for the vaccinated after eight months of receiving both initial shots are necessary. Of course, this is because wide swaths of this country are swimming in new COVID cases because some folks decided that wearing a mask was a violation of their bodily autonomy and precious liberties. So now the original virus has mutated to the Delta variant that is reported to be more contagious than the original virus and is spreading like, well, wildfire. But this country is able to offer a third or booster shot that really hasn't even been proven to be effective against the Delta variant. But Biden is pushing it anyway. As many questions as I have about the vaccine that I think are valid. And as much as I also believe that if you are medically able to, you should get vaccinated as I have. I am fully vaccinated. I also know that there are countries in the world that still don't have access to the vaccine at all or they don't have enough of it or the infrastructure to vaccinate much of their populations because those countries have been made poor by colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, and the lack of access to vaccines for their people is just another extension of the kind of medical apartheid that we experience here in the United States that actually comes from white supremacist profit-driven health policies. We can export imperialism and death and leave whole fighter jets behind, but we can't 
or shall I say, we won't, just give vaccines away to other countries so their people can be as safe from the spread of this virus as we can be. American exceptionalism in a nutshell. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we are your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's continue this discussion about these booster shots and the impact they will have on uh, the global response to the pandemic. And we're happy to be joined for this discussion by Dr. Mike Pappas, a family medicine physician, uh, activist and frequent contributor to leftvoice.org. Dr. Pappas, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You know, Dr. Pappas, I I am fully vaccinated and I don't have a problem with that. I thought that, you know, it was a better idea to get vaccinated and and, uh, you know, go ahead and do that than to risk it, uh, risk catching the virus and, uh, you know, hoping that I survive. And, and, you know, I know there are valid questions that people have with the vaccines and, and I, I have no problem with that. But I, I am really concerned about the Biden administration now uh, advising that most Americans should get a coronavirus booster vaccination eight months after they received their second shot. And this could begin, this uh, program could begin being implemented as early as the third week of September. And the policy or the plan is that the first boosters would go to nursing home residents, healthcare workers, and emergency workers um, who were the first to be vaccinated last winter. And there would, then it would be likely followed by other older people and then by the general population. But Dr. Pappas, do we know that the booster vaccines, first of all, and this is the first question I have about this, do we even know that the booster vaccines are uh, effective against the Delta variant, which is the problem we are facing in this country now because people just didn't want to wear a mask, let alone get a vaccine. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer, I guess, your first question, I there's not much. It's theorized that booster shots could help combat the uh, the Delta variant. And part of the the that theory comes from data out of Israel, where basically they found that immunity may be waning there. And they think that, uh, you know, by giving a booster shot, there will be higher uh, amounts of antibodies that can reach like the the nasal passages and those types of things. And maybe all this is, uh, you can tell how much the language I'm using, and maybe it will help to combat the Delta variant. Um, so then the, the thought is, okay, well, we're going to give out booster shots to people in the U.S. And I think the first problem with that is that around 4.7, give it or take, billion vaccines around the world have been distributed. 80% of those vaccines have gone to the richest countries in the world. And 
when you have an environment where 80% of the vaccines have already gone to the richest countries in the world, the entire continent of Africa, it's something like, like in the single digit percentile that they have been vaccinated. This idea that we're going to continue with the policy of what I would say is vaccine imperialism and make sure that the same rich countries, largely white countries, continue to now get booster shots that we don't even know will help combat the, the Delta variant, I think is pretty moronic. And, and the other part of that that I think is important is that by continuing the policies the way that we have, which is basically you make sure a particular country, like let's say it's the United States or Israel, you you shut things down, which by the way, data has shown that the shutdowns necessarily don't stem um, viral spread anyway. What stems viral spread is these, metri- these measures called Tetris measures, which are testing, isolation, um, uh, tracing, those types of things. But anyway, you shut down the country, you give out the vaccines, then you reopen and you remove all of the other you know, measures to stem viral spread, which you don't do those Tetris measures, which largely it's because public health systems have been gutted by capitalist neoliberal policies throughout not just the United States, but the world. So you can't do those things. So you just say, okay, well, we need to just give this magic bullet vaccine out and hope magically that that can solve the problem. But ironically, what we're actually seeing is by doing vaccination in just some parts of the world, and then still the vaccines, by the way, that don't stop transmission, they're non-sterilizing vaccines, so you can still transmit the virus even after getting the vaccines. What you're actually doing is you're creating an environment for more and more variants. So research has shown that the phylogeny or basically like the different um, genes and how they function inside coronavirus is expanding based on the way that we're doing these vaccination campaigns and then rolling back all other measures and not vaccinating huge parts of the world. So we're really just creating an environment that's going to produce more variants, potentially more deadly variants, more dangerous variants than the current Delta variant. And the only thing that that public health, that capitalist governments around the world have to offer is let's just give more booster shots to, and it's just the wealthy ones that can say that, and that'll solve the problem. And it's because the public health systems have been completely gutted and there's no real capacity to do anything else other than that that fits into the capitalist model. The vaccines and the booster shots fit into the capitalist model, but nothing else does. Yeah, I mean, that that is absolutely true, especially since in this country alone, about 40 percent of the population still hasn't gotten even the first vaccine. And and we're, we're not even talking about the, the parts of the country that refuse to wear masks just. And, and this is not a, a, a an indictment of individual people and blaming individual people for not wearing masks. I think, uh, Dr. Pappas, this is an indictment of what you just said, this capitalist system that uh, prioritized profits over people and did not ensure that across the country, across the board, as this pandemic uh, uh, raged on, that people were cared for so that they wouldn't have to make these crazy arguments that we have to go to work 
in a pand in the midst of a global pandemic or else we're going to not be able to feed ourselves and pay our rent. And then that turned into a a a bodily autonomy. You're you know taking away my liberty argument. All of that could have been avoided if this government said, you know what, we're going to make sure that everyone has money every month to pay their bills. We wouldn't have these arguments about the uh, eviction moratoriums if people were able to pay their rent. Landlords wouldn't be, which which shouldn't exist anyway, but landlords wouldn't be, you know, crying about, well, we can't pay our bills either. Because if the government had taken care of people's needs, we wouldn't be here. But here we are, Dr. Pappas, to the point where the capitalist system through the pharmaceutical companies that have manufactured these vaccines and patented them so that not just anybody can reproduce them. This administration, uh, the U.S. government has more than 100 million doses of vaccine stockpiled that could be used for for boosters, plus tens of millions more in freezers at pharmacies and other locations. And the administration has purchased still more supply scheduled for delivery this fall. So they're not worried about running out. So this is not a situation in this country where there is a shortage of this vaccine or, uh, you know, the materials that are needed to produce the vaccine. So there is nothing stopping this administration, this government from sharing just the stockpiles that we already have with other countries. No, I mean, there, there's nothing stopping them. But really, like, I, I think that what the, what this pandemic has shown is that capitalism is completely unable to address the crises that it itself creates. It's just proven over and over again that it isn't able to do that. And because health largely, and I would say health when it comes to like generally how governments around the world and health systems around the world view it is has now had to fit inside of the capitalist logic and capitalist ideology. Health largely has been reduced to and public health has been reduced to finding ways to extract profit from people's bodies. And any measures that are taken have to fit inside of that ideology and have to fit inside of that capitalist framework. So that means that we have to directly reject any notion of public health that moves beyond the individualized framework. It means that we have to reject any notion of public health that may move beyond the nationalist national framework. It means that we have to continue to distill health down to individual problems or problems with individuals as opposed to problems with systems. So that so when we talk about COVID, that means that we also have to reduce the problem of COVID down to an individual problem. If we can't talk about failures of capitalism, the the, the way that the cap, that the capitalist system worked to continue to not only allow the virus to spread but but frankly help it to spread so having meat packing workers work in close vicinities forcing healthcare workers to work without PPE after public health systems for example um, systems in New York where I work have been gutted it means that uh, we have to those the 
the system itself created the spread and helped to propagate the spread of coronavirus. But we can't talk about those things because if we did and we wanted to address those things, it would mean fundamentally confronting the, the, the logic of capitalism and how the capitalist system works. And that is not an option. But what is an option is to just focus on the individual and individualizing the problem. That is why President Biden has said, if you don't get the vaccine, you're part of the problem. That's why that's the new rhetoric. You just need to get the vaccine and you're part of the problem and those types of things. It's an effort also, frankly, to turn the working class in on itself and to misdirect the gaze of the working class away from the capitalist system that has caused the problem. You don't want to talk about all of the history of medical racism and experimentation in the U.S. that may make people skeptical of of taking a vaccine, of, of getting the vaccine or anything like that, or may make people skeptical of even the, the truth behind what's happening with the virus or those types of things. You don't want to talk about any of those things. Instead, you need to just say it's an individual problem. It's not a failing of capitalism. Don't look over there. And frankly, it, it, the problem with the with getting the vaccines, it extends even beyond, you know, there's this idea that, oh, well, it's just these uh, right wingers who think that they're getting injected with microchips or right. something like that. And that's the problem. We just need more education. We It's this liberal notion of we just need more education. You know what? If liberals cared so much about people getting vaccines, maybe they turn to their Lord and Savior, Bill Gates, who literally was keeping uh, vaccines from being the, the data behind and the knowledge to produce vaccines privatized and keeping it from going so the, so the world could produce the vaccines they need. This idea Everybody focuses so much on vaccines and Biden included, but then liberal darlings like Gates are making sure that things stay privatized so pharmaceutical companies can keep making profit off of the deaths of millions of people around the world. Yeah, that that's definitely a fact. And I'm so glad you brought up Bill Gates in the proper context, because I, I, I it kind of annoys me how people have the conversation about, you know, Bill Gates is you know, trying to insert microchips into people and all that kind of stuff. He, and but probably not, but he's definitely done uh, plenty of harm in the pursuit of capitalist gain. And, you know, the World Health Organization, uh, Dr. Pappas, has called for a moratorium on these COVID-19 boosters until the end of the month. Um, and, and they've done that because first of all, rich countries that are now all lining up to uh, 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 push these boosters haven't even come through on their promises to support uh, the COVAX scheme, the international alliance that supplies vaccines to low-income countries. The COVAX uh, scheme remains short on its goal to vaccinate most of the vulnerable populations just 20% of the populations by the end of 2021. I mean, so that that's one issue. The the other issue is of course that you know the the profit that these capitalist uh, um rich countries make and the rich countries the very small percentage of rich white capitalists make in these countries will have uh, undue influence, political influence even, over these other countries as the virus continues to decimate other populations. So how do we address this? First of all, Dr. Pappas, how do we get people in this country who are wary of the vaccine 
to at least wear a mask. How, a mask. How do we depoliticize this to get people to protect themselves from this uh, virus? And how do we address the issue of international distribution of the vaccine to save the lives of people in the lowest income countries in the world? I mean, I don't necessarily know if there's an if there's an easy for the first part about in this country with wearing masks, if there's easy answers to those questions. I think that largely the the hesitancy to wear masks, to believe that certain like that people are dying from this or those types of things really stems from the way that how horribly our medical system and public health system has functioned over the years and and how it's as i said just been distilled to a vehicle for um capital capital accumulation and profit accumulation and i think that the only real way at the core to address that issue is to is we need a fundamental shift of how the healthcare system functions i think that if i'm talking about like it, very small measures that can be taken. You know, one of the things that could be taken is, for example, we can look at models of how other countries have worked to control the virus. And one of the ways that they've done this is they've drastically expanded not only testing, isolation, tracing, those types of things. And then if people need to isolate, provide them resources to stay home instead of just saying, okay, well, you might have to stay home, but hey, guess what? Tough. Try to just survive anyway, which then forces people to potentially go to work, expose others, those types of things. Um, that we need to provide financial support for people who might have to isolate. But then the other thing that we need is we need expansion of the number of community health workers in the United States. You know, Biden talked about maybe I think it was a hundred thousand community health workers in the U.S. We need way more than that in the U.S. And when you have people who are struggling to survive, who don't have employment, this is a perfect opportunity to actually employ people to go to people's homes, talk with them about these things, do real like long-term work of talking with people about about what's going on and about the virus. Other like a country like Cuba has done this as an example where health extends beyond the healthcare setting into people's lives. And I think that that's one way that it can be done. Globally, I mean we need to do similar things like that on a global schedule uh, on a global scale, expand that, but also just distilling down down things to this magic bullet of a vaccine isn't going to be the solution. If people if we aren't continuing to decrease transmission of the virus, and we are just focusing on expanding vaccination slightly more, which we would need much, much wider vaccination, we are only going to create an environment for more variants and a more dangerous uh, situation for things down the line, for us down the line. So we really need to have people like decrease drive transmission down. So do those measures that I talked about in countries around the world, expand vaccination, take profit out of it, basically. So you would basically have to um, make the knowledge behind producing vaccines much more readily available. So anybody who wants a vaccine can get one and then do things to you know protect the general public much more largely. Absolutely. Well, we are out of time for this segment. We want to thank you, Dr. Mike Pappas, for joining us so much to talk about this very important issue. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us.
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about a recent speech uh, from Chinese officials about redistributing wealth in China. And for this discussion, we are happy to be joined by John Ross, the senior fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at the Renmin University of China and author of the new book, China's Great Road, Lessons for Marxist Theory and Socialist Practices. John Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be here. We are happy to have you here because this is a really great uh, uh, time to be talking about redistributing wealth uh, and Marxism and the like. And it's certainly a conversation, it seems, that Chinese officials are not afraid to have, even though obviously in the United States we don't ever want to have this conversation. Uh, Because recently, President Xi Jinping emphasized at a finance and economic meeting just yesterday the need to support moderate wealth for all or the idea of common prosperity, um, which analysts have said is behind the latest regulatory uh, crackdowns in China on tech companies that are making massive profits. And the meeting called for the reasonable adjustment of excessive incomes and encouraging high income groups and businesses to return more to society. I mean, as People like ourselves, John, who this sounds good to us. How do you see this playing out in uh, U.S. media and the U.S. government? What what do you think their response to this is going to be, even though this is clearly how China put themselves in the position of being a world economic power in the first place? Well, I imagine the reportage in the American media will be terrible. I mean, what what Xi Jinping is demanding is that people who are less well-off should get more money and people who are extremely well-off should get um, less money. And I think that this would be greeted by horror in the American media, although it might well be greeted with pleasure by the American population. And it's certainly being greeted by pleasure with the Chinese population. I think it's useful just to put it in context. China is... In 1949, when the People's Republic of China was carried out, uh, was created, uh, China was almost the poorest country in the world. According to the statistics, there were only 10 countries which had a lower per capita GDP. Then it underwent phenomenal economic development, taking it from being almost the world's poorest country to being on the brink of a high-income economy by international standards. But obviously, you couldn't have such a gigantic transformation without there being problems. Uh, There were problems of environmental uh, pollution and damage, and there were problems of excessive inequality. Now that China has succeeded in making this great economic stride forward, what the government is saying, because it's a socialist government, is what it says on the tin, is that it wants to sort out some of these problems and get rid of these excessive inequalities. It's very simple. It's come from poverty, which the United States couldn't even imagine. I mean, it's a European country with a per capita income in the in the 16th century. 
to be in a prosperous society. Now, it's, it's left, this has left a legacy of problems, and it's dealing with it by socialist methods. This will probably horrify the capitalists in the United States. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, and we, we frequently on this show talk about uh, how China has uh, um, eliminated extreme poverty in its country, and they targeted uh, a lot of the far uh, uh, out rural areas and, you know, literally built and created cities and jobs and trained people and raised their standard of living from, you know, a very rural subsistence kind of existence where people did suffer uh, un- under crushing poverty and in poverty and improved their lives uh, by providing them access to education, uh, infrastructure, services, health care, and a stable income. But because of the profits of uh most notably the tech industry in China, income inequality has grown uh, over the last uh, few decades. The top 10 percent of the population earned 41 percent of the national income in 2015. And the lower earning half of the population uh, uh, saw its share of national income fall to about 15 percent. Uh, but China, a- as opposed to the United States, because, of course, income inequality is an enormous problem here. But China's response to it is very different from the United States response to it. And China is uh, a proposing to continue to use socialist policies to do that. So I'm wondering, John, what you think the response from the rich in China, the tech companies, the uh, uh, the 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 mega rich, that ten percent. Do you think their response to the Chinese government's policies uh, to redistribute that wealth is going to be uh, reminiscent or like the response of the corporations in this company to just paying taxes? No, I, I don't think so. Not not because billionaires are any different in their psychology in China to billionaires in the United States because the whole social system is different. They don't run the country. I mean, you know, millionaires and billionaires. I mean, the American House of Representatives and Senate is full of millionaires, right? Whereas it's not in the, the Communist Party of China and the Chinese government is not. So they're, they're still going to be well off. I mean, you know, China is not proposing something. It's not going to take, you know, if you're, if you're rich, it's going to take some of your money, but it's not going to take all of your money. You're still going to be rich. So they'll be a bit... Uh, perhaps a bit dissatisfied, but they haven't got any choice in the situation. And furthermore, uh, they are in a, a society in which o- will overwhelmingly support these measures because China is what it says it is. It's a socialist country. It was so poor in 1949, you know, after 100 years of invasion by foreign powers, you can't imagine it. I mean, I don't think the United States, after the arrival of the Europeans, was ever as poor as China, because if you look at it on the statistics, say China's was lower GDP per capita than the 16th century. So therefore, it's it, the idea that it could solve all its problems at one go is absolutely ridiculous. It's in, infantile, right? So there are some problems which have existed in the situation. One is big one is the environment, which has been sorted out. Another one is inequality, and they're dealing with that. But the, the difference is they say we don't want such an inequality, unequal society. Therefore, we're going to deal with it. Whereas the United States is taking no serious measures to deal with the questions of inequality at all. It's a completely different approach to the uh, situation. And 
you know, the number of billionaires in the society is very, very small. It's only if they are able to exercise political power, as in the United States, that they can do what they want. But in China, they don't exercise political power. So therefore, this will proceed more or less as in the way that Xi Jinping indicated. Yeah, and certainly the way that uh, Xi Jinping's comments were framed in the U.S. media reflects, you know, that that uh, demonization of of China's policies, because they do say that uh, Xi Jinping's need for uh, or his expression that China needs to ensure common prosperity among the Chinese people as critical for the party to maintain power, um, as opposed to, you know, what Xi Jinping actually said was that common prosperity is in the interest of social fairness, and it's necessary to reasonably regulate excessively high income and encourage high income people and enterprises to return more to society. You know, so, uh, John, how are we in the United States? How should we take the lessons of what the Chinese government is embarking on now, now that they have eliminated extreme poverty uh, poverty in the country, and now they are pushing toward creating a more equal society, a more fair society in China that's for the benefit of all people, that will certainly transform China into a more fully developed and uh, uh certainly rich and more influential nation by 2049. This is what China's goal uh, stated uh, stated goal is. What lessons can we take in this country for those of us who want even a glimmer of that kind of thing to happen here? How do we change the narrative that we're getting from corporate media about this very common sense and humane uh, a policy that China is embarking on? How do we translate that into what we want here? That's going to be very difficult, I'm afraid, because the United States is a capitalist society. And therefore, uh, it's run by rich people in the interests of rich people. The average income of Americans or the median income of Americans, to be a bit technical, has not gone up for for decades. And the the growth of the American economy has gone to the top 1% or the top and the top 10%, but above all the top 1% of the US population. So the economy is growing, but all the benefits are being taken by a layer of the super rich at the top, and ordinary people are not are gaining from this. And horrific, horrific things happening at the present time. I mean, with COVID, I mean, the life expectancy in the United States is falling, and the life expectancy of, um, of black people and ethnic minorities is falling even more. The, the situation for ordinary people in the United States is absolutely horrible. That, but that's because it's got a capitalist system. In in China, the average standard of living of the country goes up by four or five percent a year. I mean in the United States if you if the popular if the average standard of living goes up by two percent a year, you easily win a presidential election. And uh, in the income average income of people in China has gone up uh, much more rapidly than that. And uh, it's just because it's got a socialist system. I'm afraid the United States will have to go through a very long and difficult struggle in order to create such a socialist system. But it's why all the polls and everything, even those carried by the United States, show that the Chinese government has such a support because you're just getting better off all the time. I mean, it's very moving. You know, I teach in Chinese university. You know, 
20 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago, people were thinking about getting their first foreign holiday. And that, that was a big excitement. Now, now they're planning how they take their parents on their foreign holiday. Well, they're not at the moment, of course, because of COVID. But I mean, they were. And they just expect every every year their, their standard living is going to go up by four or five percent. So it's no surprise that they're really rather satisfied with the situation. But in, in the US, it's, I'm afraid, going to be a very big struggle to get to the same situation. Yeah, that is absolutely a fact. And I think uh, uh, the difference uh, certainly between uh, China's socialist policies and uh, the United States' is, uh, capitalist policies to the point where, you know, the United States' uh, policies are absolutely exploitative is that China has a government and has a leader that has actually taken responsibility quite publicly in the party's failure to control uh people getting too rich. Uh, So Xi Jinping actually said that the party allowed some people, some areas to get rich first, allowing its economic reforms, uh, uh, following its economic reforms dating back to the 1970s. But then he said that the central government is made realizing the common prosperity of all people uh, is a more important Position. I mean, how often do we hear in the United States, John, politicians admit that their policies were incorrect, they were wrong, they didn't pay enough attention to a problem uh, that allowed other people to basically um, create a situation where there wasn't equality uh, in society? So, I mean, you're right, we have a long way to go before we get to that kind of government, but it is always important to point out what we can uh, aspire to and what we should be expecting to deserve from our politicians. But we are out of time for this segment. I want to thank John Ross so much for joining us. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukemont, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the legacy of white supremacy and racism in environmentalism. And for this conversation, we are happy to be joined by Anthony Rogers Wright, Policy Coordinator with Climate Justice Alliance. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sister Jackie. How are you? I am doing as well as can be expected. And you know what? I'm doing better than the climate movement, I think, at the moment, because there's a lot of, I don't know what to call it, tension, uh, craziness, confusion, maybe chaos in the climate movement that's emerging. Um, and it has to do with the struggle around the the legacy of racism and white supremacy and how it's showing up in the climate movement, the response to the climate crisis, and what emphasis is put on what issues and what areas 
get the most help first. And you recently wrote an article called Colonizing Calamity, Why Anglocentrism Exacerbates the Climate Crisis. And I can't say the the other part of the title because, you know, the FCC and stuff. But, you know, tell us what's going on with the, the way folks in the climate justice movement, the environmental movement are focusing on or having a problem with Anglo-centrism and why that's exacerbating the climate crisis. Absolutely. So first, real quick uh, correction, um, as much as I love climate justice life and still work with all uh, my sisters and brothers and um, um, uh, folk there, I am uh, currently the director of environmental justice with New York Lawyers for Public Interest. And, and that, that doesn't change the uh, situation that we're going to talk about right now. Um, now, this, this is nothing new, unfortunately, Sister Jackie. Uh, back in the 1990s, right around the time that the 17 principles of environmental justice were released at the first people of color. Uh, conference on the environment, and a few years uh, before the 1996 MS principles for democratic organizing were released, the Southwest Organizing Project at that time led by Richard Moore, who is now part of uh, Joe Biden's White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, um, penned a letter with a bunch of organizations as signers to um, big green, historically white-led organizations, including Sierra Club, um, Environmental Defense Fund, Friends of the Earth, National Resource Defense Council, and, and more, basically saying your practices are racist. The way you operate is absolutely racist. The way you um, extract all the funding is absolutely racist. And, you know, there there was a lot of white guilt, as you could imagine. I mean, this was uh, even before Dr. D'Angelo came out with her opus, White Fragility, um, and it was on full display back then. Um, that has continued, unfortunately. And um, this idea of Anglocentrism is this idea that um, white people um, hold all the tools to solve a crisis that was largely created by them. Right. So um, what I always say is I reject the term Anthropocene, which is another um, um, white liberal term to describe the climate crisis. That is absolutely untrue. The Anthropocene um, connotes that we are all responsible equally for this climate crisis that we find ourselves in. But no, people, um, sisters and brothers in IET, the continent of Africa, indigenous people all across the world who were colonized by um, an Anglo-European minority, um, we're not, are not responsible for this climate crisis. And to put that into perspective, the United States of America represents 5% of the global population, but over 26% of global emissions that contribute to this climate crisis. So, um, so, so that's first and foremost. And that has continued. And what, what, it, what it really is, is um, as our sister Yane Indigo in Philly says, is it's a pathology of whiteness. Right. It's a, it, it, and, and this idea of Anglocentrism is rooted in colonization. And as I like to say, as you saw in the piece that you uh, referenced, um, the, the three root causes of this climate crisis are white supremacy, colonization, and patriarchy. And that still, unfortunately, um, as I'm sure we're going to get into, um, remains today, remains a major problem and therefore a major impediment to uh, uh, climate justice and uh, really um, averting the worst cases of this climate crisis that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. And I think you wrapped up how those three issues, white supremacy, colonization and 
patriarchy uh, show up in the climate justice spaces or in the climate justice uh, actions with this quote from your article. Now, it's funny, but I think it actually encapsulates everything that you just said. You said, due to Anglocentrism, climate activism is what hip hop and the blues would sound like if those forms of music were created by white folk. Vacuous, played out lyrics over beats on the one and the three about suffering in the suburbs and Kenny G saxophone solos that sound like soggy cotton candy dipped in bad mayonnaise. Now, aside from being an incredible wordsmith and creating a completely hilarious mental uh, uh, imagery, I do think that what you just said there does reflect how these three issues, uh, white supremacy, colonization, and patriarchy do show up in climate justice uh, activism because we don't see focus on the most uh, impacted communities, which are in this country, mostly Latinx, poor, you know, migrant people, immigrants, uh, black folks living in living in urban areas that are highly polluted, black folks and poor folks and white folks living in rural areas that are polluted, interestingly enough, by uh, mostly by factory farming or mining. But there's always this focus on recycling. And, you know, uh, uh, that that kind of thing, these little efforts that everyone should do, but they don't address the major issues that affect the most people, which are almost always black, brown, indigenous and a significant portion of them women, Anthony. So, I mean, just I think you described that uh, a reality really well in a very funny way in your piece. Yeah, no, absolutely, Sister Jackie. I mean, um, the the issue with um, white-led um, um, climate activism, environmental activism, is that it, it it tends to only go after the symptoms, right? You just named it recycling, zero emission vehicles. Yes, and that that all is very very helpful. However, if we don't go after the root causes, we're going to continue to to recreate these systems that that are working well for some people and working well for capitalism, but will never work. Um, to emancipate all of us, which includes poor white folk in Appalachia, by the way, from this climate crisis, from being extracted from, right? Um, um, uh, uh, white folk in, um, poor white folk in Appalachia, West Virginia, and, and uh, Tennessee, Kentucky are being extracted from, just like, as you named, um, our indigenous sisters and brothers throughout Indian country continue to be extracted from. Um, and, and of course, you know, the legacy of environmental racism, as coined by the, the great Dr. Benjamin Chavez, you know, it's what it really comes down to is an assault on public health. Now, we are still in a global pandemic, and it's no shock that uh, COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting the same folk who are disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis, who are disproportionately impacted by medical apartheid, who are disproportionately impacted by the new attacks on democracy and voting rights. And that's because um, it is a system of white supremacy, um, this, this pathology of whiteness. So, um, unfortunately, and, and, and we're going to get into two articles, I believe, uh, two prominent um, environmental organizations where, you know, the chickens have kind of, uh, the, the white chickens have kind of come home to roost, and this has, has been exposed yet again. And, and, and that's what I mean, right? These articles that we're about to talk about with these prominent environmental organizations, the cycle continues 
from the letter that uh, Brother Moore and Southwest Organizing Project sent in um, uh, the 1990s because the root causes were not addressed. So here's, here's another example. Right now we're talking about, yes, renewable energy. Of course, we have to get off of fossil fuels immediately, Sister Jackie. But if we replace the fossil fuel empire with a renewable energy empire, we have not gone after the root causes. And we're just going to uh, uh, be in this uh, vicious capitalism, uh, capitalist circumference, where we're right back where we started. People are still going to be extracted from. We're not going to have energy democracy. And um, the folk who you name, indigenous, black, brown, Asian, white folk, are going to be disproportionately impacted, and, and they're going to be extracted from, especially workers. And as you named it, yes, the, the, the patriarchy of climate change, it, it's absolutely women who are disproportionately impacted. So you see poisonous practices, extractive practices like fracking. Um, disproportionately impacting the reproductive health of, of women. And as you uh, um, uh, named earlier, the people who are most displaced by uh, climate-fueled storms, hurricanes, um, um, typhoons, heat waves, droughts, et cetera, are women and young children. Absolutely. And since you did raise the issue of these in, in influential uh, environmental organizations, it's the Sierra Club. They are having a reckoning with the racist legacy of the founder of the Sierra Club, John Muir. And and I think this is one of those examples of uh, Anglocentrism that I've always kind of seen with the Sierra Club. I mean, I I. I used to do like cold called fundraising for those people. And I just felt like I, it was nice that we were, you know, at the time raising money for saving the eagles and that kind of stuff. But I knew that people in the community I lived in were having a problem with illegal dumping of garbage and, you know, that kind of thing. So so what is going on with uh, the Sierra Club and uh, John Muir and his legacy of racism? And and is it something that the agency should be focused on right now? And do you think it has impacted their uh, environmentalism and what they focused on throughout the years? You know, I want to start by saying that um, I know a lot of incredible people who work for the Sierra Club. I work closely with them. I trust um, um, some of them, uh, and, and some of them have, have even um, acted as teachers for me. That said, that doesn't hide the legacy that the founder of this organization um, was a white supremacist who had um, profound and disgusting um, takes on both black folk and indigenous folk and, and, and John Muir, and, and he is still celebrated, right? He's still celebrated for, you know, um, um, advising the um, indigenous killer in chief, you know, um, Theodore Roosevelt. And, and, that, and, that's, and that is the legacy of, of the Sierra Club. Now, the outgoing executive director, Michael Brune, who I have met on, on a couple of occasions and have had some very cogent discussions with him, penned a piece, you know, alluding to the fact that the Sierra Club has its own racist monument. And, and he was uh, using that as a metaphor for John Muir. Apparently, uh, some folk on his board of directors took umbrage with that piece because they didn't want to get to the root causes, didn't want to get to the truth. And that, that is a form of white supremacy. That is a pathology of whiteness. Uh, it can't, we can't possibly be racist because we just voted to agree that, yes, there should be reparations for black folk. The Sierra Club, you know, finally came around. Well, well thanks, Sierra Club. As if black folk were waiting for, for you to, uh, you know, to approve, you know, of what's rightfully ours. You know, and uh, as a descendant of African slaves, um, and, and but, but what we also have to look at is the membership of the Sierra Club. This is a majority white membership, a majority suburban affluent white membership, 
and who, who many believe, I'm going to go ahead and say it, that addressing anti-Black racism specifically can be done and satisfied simply by putting a Black Lives Matter sign in your front yard. Meanwhile, on your porch, there's like a whole bunch of packages from Amazon, right? So um, um, it, it just really doesn't add up. The other thing that we have to talk about is the funding apparatus of uh, 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 environmental organizations. The funders are also descendants of white supremacists, the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, Ford Foundation. This guy was a, a Nazi a sympathizer, for goodness sake, right? And that legacy is 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 emerging, you know, in, in this thing. You, you can't just perambulate the past and hope for a better present and therefore a, a better future. And the bottom line is that we, you, you saw too, Sister Jackie, everybody, all the nonprofits, at some statement of solidarity last summer, you know, uh, the, uh, in the summer of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd uh, and many other black folk who were assassinated by, uh, by the state, lynched by the state, you know, you know, we are committed to this and we're committed to that and, and, and racial justice, but, but not really committed to digging deep. And then what, what, what became in vogue was that everybody got the new DEI or the JEDI, right, the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Department, the Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Department, but it was all cosmetic. And, 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 and we're seeing what happens when you only have cosmetic justice in lieu of visceral deep justice. We're going to get to the root of what our issues are. And until these uh, white-led environmental organizations choose to do that, I'm not just talking with, you know, a few token hires here and there. Right. That's not going to cut it. I'm talking about the deep, quotidian work. We're never going to um, achieve climate justice because you cannot achieve uh, 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 climate justice without addressing all forms of injustice. That's absolutely true. And you know what? We, we have to dig deeper to get to a better future. But we are out of time for this segment and we're at the end of the hour. But we'll be back for a second hour right after this. Want to thank Anthony Rogers Wright so much for joining us. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Welcome back, my friends. It is Wednesday, August 18th. And as always, today we will be opening the phone lines at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to take your calls so you can Tell us about anything that's on your mind. Ask us any question you'd like or share a joke to make us feel good because times is hard. But that's not the only way you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary. Of course, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also hit us up on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. You can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcasts 
podcast platforms, you can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour, people are celebrating the 101st anniversary of the passing or the uh, ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution uh, that was uh, done today in 1787, I think, something or other like that, uh, giving white women the right to vote, the only group of women recognized as citizens at that time. Let's be clear that Native American women were not deemed worthy of the vote and were not considered citizens until 1924. And even then, they were barred from voting. Asian American women were not considered citizens until 1952. Black women were not considered citizens until 1965. Non-English speaking people, usually uh, uh, people of Mexican or Chicano or Latinx uh, people, were not considered citizens until 1975. So my opinion is, and this is going to upset some folks, that I don't celebrate the ratification of the 19th Amendment. But we are happy to be joined today by Dr. Jamima Pierre. Hi, uh, mm, goodness, I've talked a lot today and I'm tongue-tied. Haiti, America's coordinator for the Black Alliance for Peace. Dr. Pierre, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Jackie. It's so good and I'm honored to be here with you for this hour. I am really honored to have you on, especially in light of, you know, what I just talked about. Today, people are celebrating the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And Dr. Pierre, I don't know, am I just really like the most cynical woman you've ever met? (laughs) And that I just I just don't celebrate it because, you know, my grandmama couldn't vote until she was 39 years old. So I I don't think your thoughts about that. I don't think black people should celebrate most of these holidays in this country. <laughs> you know, I mean, we go from like, the you know, independence to all of these other things. Um, this country was not made, you know, uh, that, the country was made on our backs. It not, was not made for us um, as black people and, or non-white people. So you're right on. You know, I, I'm not calling it cynicism as much as I'm calling it, you know, uh, reality. And, and you're just reading it and seeing it for what it is. And I wish more black people, um, Africans would see that, you know, would see that this country is not, is not meant for us. <laughs> you know, we live here, but it's not for us. Mm, I, I mean, ooh, that's deep right there. We live here, but it's not for us. Nah. <laughs> I mean, I think there is so much to unpack today in particular, aside from, you know, the 19th Amendment being ratified and and, you know, folks celebrating that. But there's also, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan. And I, and I think, Dr. Pierre, that that while, yes, we we should be glad that the United States ground forces, because I can't say the United States military 
is not in Afghanistan anymore because we don't know if drone bombings will continue. We don't know, you know, the contractors and the mercenaries. We, we know how the U.S. does. But, but I think that one of the conversations that we should continue to have about these kinds of conflicts, long wars and, and U.S. involvement, uh, occupation, invasion uh, in other countries is the way that the racism of this country, this empire plays out in these kinds of foreign policy issues that, you know, eventually people get around to being like, oh, my God, we've been in this war for 20 years and it's terrible. But the people on the ground in these places are usually not white people. The United States has not invaded Sweden, hasn't invaded Norway. Uh, They have some mineral resources, too. But we, we normally don't invade mostly white countries. And I know a couple of, of friends who are who are more right leaning, who will quickly point out, well, what about Ukraine? OK, that's right. That, that is the one exception. But even that has different, you know, geopolitical uh, and strategic implications. But but Dr. Pierre, just the blatant barbaric racism. That is displayed not just throughout the occupation, the invasion and occupation of of Afghanistan, but I I I contend it that's reflected in even Biden's comments about it from yesterday. So I'm just wondering how you see this situation in Afghanistan, how it's folded out, and how the U.S. has responded to it in the context of the racism of this country. Well, yeah, I I think you're right on. And I have to say kudos for your monologue yesterday on Biden's crazy white supremacist, horrible speech, because I was just like, yes, yes. You know, Jackie Lukman, this is how you do it, because one of the things that I think anti-imperialist organizers and activists in this country in particular, and especially non-black ones, non um, do is not talk about white supremacy and racism in U.S. policy, because it is the it is foundational to U.S. foreign policy. It is foundational to U.S. empire and empire making and building. And it is what drives, you know, the actions on the ground. You know, so, yes, the U.S. has geopolitical, you know, its geopolitical um, um, agenda. It's but it's, you know, trying to, you know, take over control of resources and so on and so forth. But it also you know, that move depends on dehumanization of the people that they are, you know, attacking, bombing, um, you know, the genocidal move against people in order to have access to their resources. And so I think the most important thing we need to do is actually point out this white supremacy and point out this racism in these actions, because they don't, there is, you're absolutely right. This doesn't happen to non-black, you know, non-black and brown nations. This happens to, you know, Africans, people in the so-called Middle East and people in the Americas that are not white. Right. And that are <laughs> that are not linked to Europe in some one way or another. So so for me, I think, you know, always pointing to this language, you know, the, this language that points the other as barbaric and stupid, as you said yesterday, or points Afghanistan as a graveyard, which I thought was so astute on your, you know, on your part to, to, to point that out to people, because if people throw that around flippantly, all of these are part of the racial logics of how the U.S. approach approaches the rest of the world, right? Um, be, you know, below Europe, the, the global south, right? And 
if we don't understand that, we cannot understand how imperialism works or the impunity which which imperialist um, practices um, uh, are being pursued um, by the U.S. and the Europeans. Yeah, I, and and I appreciate you know the the kudos, but I but I have to I have to just be honest. Sometimes I just be angry, Doctor Pierre. <laughs> and I well, just, you know, as they say, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. <laughs> I mean, I I would like to you know put put an intellectual kind of face on it, but no, no. Sometimes I I'm just angry, and I just you know I try not to cuss <laughs> because of the FCC <laughs> and all this kind of stuff, you know, because I love my job. But sometimes I I I, I just be angry because this. This kind of stuff is just it's it's appalling. I mean, it, it is when you read the Afghanistan papers and and folks, if you did not read the Afghanistan papers when they were published in 2019 in The Washington Post, go and read them and read the things that U.S. military members said about the people in that country that they were supposed to be there to, quote unquote, train and help. So so when the Afghan Afghan people, including the folks, Dr. Pierre, who were on the U.S. payroll, the interpreters and and such, repeatedly used words like disrespect to describe Americans. I mean, it's it's wild to me how people now use the 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 trope of you know oh the afghans were cowards and and they didn't want to fight for their freedom and they didn't want to fight the taliban it's like well wait a minute you come to our country first of all you bomb us for you know 30 years you use us to fight your enemy not ours then you come in and 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 you bomb our country for a decade and in the process you let it be known that you think that we are, you know, backwards, stupid cave dwellers. And then you wonder why we won't fight your war for you. And, and I, I just find it really amazing that, of course, I don't expect this connection to be made in corporate media. I don't expect this connection to be made in, in, poli- you know, in, in political circles. I certainly don't expect Kamala Harris to come out and say anything in defense of brown people, black and brown people anywhere in the world. Because <laughs> I mean, look at what she's done to brown folks in California, black and brown folks in California. But it, it has bothered me that this has not been a part of the discussion on the left about the outcome of what's going on in Afghanistan, uh, uh, Dr. Pierre. And I'm wondering what you think that means for where we are on the left as an anti-war movement if we claim to be anti-imperialist. Right. And, 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 and that's the problem, which is why the left is so disjointed and cannot, you know, and, and the left here is in quotes because <laughs> what people are calling left, I don't know these days. But um, but, but the point is, those of us who are anti-imperialist have to be anti-white supremacy and anti-capitalism. I mean, that's the reality. All these things go together. And, and, and for anyone who thinks this U.S. nation, which was built, you know, on the bones and blood of Native Americans and African-Americans uh, and Africans, to not be racist to the core, there's something wrong with it. And that that racism just, you know, does not continue through and seep through all of its institution. Look, I have an example for you. This, you know, um, 
a, a couple of years ago, it was reported that in re- newly released phone calls of Ronald Reagan, he called African countries. He's, you know, he said, you know, I was watching TV the other day. The, those monkeys, those from African countries, it looks like they're still uncomfortable wearing shoes. This is the president of the U.S. talking about African heads of states. You sure <laughs> you that know? wasn't Trump? <laughs> right, exactly. Because every institution is drenched in this blood and, and white supremacy. And so this is, and you know, we don't even know what Biden is saying, you know, um, in, in, in private about, you know, the, the, the people from the so-called Middle East or Africa. And well, we do know because he's a racist. I mean, look what, what he said about Haiti. So my thing is, you know, the reality is U.S. foreign policy is drenched in racism. And until you start with that fact, you can talk about geopolitical strategies all you want all you want. It won't, it won't make your analysis better. In fact, your analysis will suffer if you don't include that white supremacist part, white supremacy part in it. Yeah. And, and I, I am reminded of course, of the U S atrocities in uh, Iraq at at, uh, Abu Ghraib, Um, the savagery in Fallujah, uh, the, the, the horrific, horrific um actions in haditha and and just the entire iraq issue i i can't think of a word that is horrible enough to describe it right now because it's it's it is just it's it's a it is a a crime against humanity what this country has done in those regions that you just mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Pierre, that that, you know, some European European person called the Middle East. But that is not what those regions were called by the indigenous peoples of those regions. And and being someone who is an anti-imperialist and also focusing on African liberation and uh, anti-war from a black perspective. How do we. Frame these conversations. How do we have these conversations in our so-called left circles about the importance of focusing on the white supremacy behind U.S. imperialism? That's not just driven by uh, uh, capitalism, because it is. It is driven by capitalism, but it's not just driven by capitalism, because if it were, as I said a few minutes ago, we we would have invaded Sweden. (laughs) You know, uh, well, not we. Let me stop saying that. Uh, The United States would have invaded Sweden uh, a a while ago, you know, for whatever resources they have. So, I mean, these conversations are important. And and I do get annoyed when I'm talking to so-called leftists and they always talk about it's capitalism, it's capitalism, it's capitalism. But it's also white supremacy. How do we shift that conversation? Well, we just need to keep having the conversation because, you know, these 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 white leftists in particular refuse to acknowledge race, you know, a lot of the times. And, you know, I feel like I'm we're still in the 70s having this conversation about whether or not it's race or class, as opposed to thinking that they go hand in hand. You know, um, Eric Williams will tell you that, you know, it is, the, you know, out of capitalism, the emergence of capitalism also means the emergence of racism. It's, you know, it's racism that created ideas about racial difference and so on. So those two things, you can never separate white supremacy from from capitalism because white supremacy, capitalism depends on white supremacy in so many ways. And we see it over and over again. And so part of that, part of it is, you know, they won't listen to us. 
Um, we just have to have our conversations and, and keep saying it because that's the only way we can keep the ideas out there, you know, take ideological control of this conversation, especially linking, you know, anti-imperialism to anti-capitalism to anti-white supremacy. And, and, and it's, you know, it's always black people actually that are at the forefront, uh, Africans that are at the forefront of these kinds of conversations. And we need to keep doing that and not let the leftists outspeak us. You know, so so the white leftists who don't want to deal with race, not let them outspeak us, you know, and we just have to keep going. Absolutely. We're going to continue this conversation on the other side of the next break. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, my friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Dr. Jamima Pierre, and we have a caller on the line. Tarif, tell me what's on your mind. Thank you for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free journal of science. Turn your hands off of Haiti. Um, Professor Pierre is one of the best um, analysts out there dealing with the African culture and the Caribbean. Uh, I like listening to her speak on the subject, dealing with Haiti and whatnot. Her and uh, Gerald, um, J- oh, me, Gerard, Gerard um, Horn from Houston. Right. Dr. Gerald Horn, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, this is about um, Afghanistan. They just, they, they, okay, they're giving the U.S. ultimatum by putting out the September 11, right? But I think this was going to happen because it's so much crucial in that region of the world. In other hands, people being involved with that. This would be what was going to happen as the troops try to leave, as the civilians try to leave, because it's estimated from 10 to 80,000 people that, that that's not on the books. Right, that's undercover people, uh, CIA, MI6. I think if the Taliban might do, I have a hunch, it's just an opinion, they're gonna have people on a um, runway blocking the planes where they can't land it or take off. So, what's gonna happen? September 11 gonna come around. They're gonna say, Well, we gave you by September 11. And you say, Well, they have people on the F field. Well, that's not our problem, that's your problem. Because what's gonna happen is if Anything happen and they use those contractors to fire on those civilians, then that's going to make it. It's going to make it around the world that the U.S. is killing people, right? And that's that's going to play in the, uh, favor of the Taliban and other nations. Don't condemn the U.S. And also, you got news. You got the Washington Examiner, the opinion piece talking about, hey, it's time for Taiwan to go Iran to go on nuclear right now, which is insane, you know. So. And, and the, the Senator Corn came out and said they got 30,000 troops in Taiwan, which breaks some type of um, agreement between U.S. and China. And um, that's not good because China can, can evade Taiwan right now if they find out if it's true. So you're going to see a lot of things start shaking in the next six months. Well, I think the next three months. And it ain't going to be good for the U.S. or NATO. And free joint science. And also Haiti. I forgot. Haiti. Uh, Earl is coming from underneath the ground, pouring up. Hey, man, I hope 
Haiti works with Russia, China, and nations that want to help it rebuild. That's all I wanted to say. And thank you, um, um, doctor, for being on the show. Thank you so much, for uh, Tarif, for calling. We appreciate you. Hope to hear from you again soon. You know, I, I, the, the last time you called, Tarif, you, you brought up Taiwan. And I think that's important because we have to understand that Taiwan is an ally, uh, I think, of the U.S. They're in a dispute with China over, I think, the South China Sea, that territory. And China indeed could invade Taiwan, but they haven't. And you have to wonder why they haven't. And I think it is because, and look, I don't want to appear to be like an apologist for, you know, any other country. Um, But I think that the fact that China does not uh, employ imperialist policies, they're not interested in invading another country, even if the a region that is disputed in the South China Sea, legally, whatever you want to call it, does belong, I guess, if you want to make the argument that land belongs to anyone, is a part of Chinese territory. But yes, China could indeed invade Taiwan, but they don't. They'd rather use some type of diplomacy that the United States, I'm not going to say doesn't know how to use, just never uses. So I, I think the Taiwan angle is important. And I, I'm sure I've gotten some of the details wrong because I, you know, I don't spend a whole lot of time uh, uh, studying that part of uh, the, the situation with China and that region. But I do know that the United States is 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 really keen on providing weapons and military support to Taiwan in order to challenge China. But I think the 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 point about um I, I, Iran going nuclear is a bad idea. I you know, I don't know how I feel about that. Why is it okay for Israel to have nuclear weapons so many that we don't really know how many there are, maybe 40, maybe 20, maybe 200, but Iran can't. And that's a bad idea. I'm not I, I'm I'm I don't know how to feel about that, but but I'm wondering what your thoughts on our caller are, Dr. Pierre. Yeah, well, you know, everyone's speculating around um, what the Taliban is doing, um, what it will do. Um, you know, the other speculation I've seen is that this was probably a negotiated deal with the Taliban. You never know, because they also allowed the U.S. airspace time to evacuate before they, uh, you know, uh, approach Kabul. And 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 people are saying, you know, and then, you know, this morning on Twitter, they, there's pictures of an arms cache that, that the Taliban said the U.S. left. It was thousands and thousands of guns and ammunition just left behind. Right. And so, you know, all of these are speculations and we don't know what's happening. But what I want to what I do want to say is <laughs> we do have to remember that the military, you know, mili- the, the way the U.S. But, um, fights this their wars now. I think ever since Somalia, they don't want they don't like to lose troops, so they use military contractors and mercenaries, as you know we all know this. And so there were thousands of them. And I think the caller is right. Like, what's going to happen to these mercenaries? And 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 they're still there. But also, we also have to know that just because they've you know the U.S. all eyes are on Afghanistan, the U.S. continues its other wars of aggression across the world, right? So. You know, more there's there's military being shifted to Somalia, you know, drone strikes on Somalia again. And, and then as recently as last week, 
special forces moved to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so we have to actually be weary. We have to think about like that U.S. wars don't end until empire ends. And we have to like think about that. And even as they shift, they shift from Afghanistan. They're going to continue what they do until they fall. And, you know, we can speculate about what the Taliban is doing, whether or not this was a negotiated move that's made, being made to seem like, <laughs> like, you know, this is horror. Remember, the U.S. created the Taliban. So we, we don't know. It'll be interesting to see um, what, what happens in the next few months. Yeah, I mean, that there is, you know, so much to U.S. militarism that we don't know, don't understand that. Honestly, we just scratched the surface of um, when these kinds of things in Afghanistan happen um, only because that's the way the system is set up. And I mean, I think one of those examples, Dr. Pierre, is just the existence and what uh, and, and the mission, the actual mission, what they're really doing of U.S. Southcom, the U.S. Southern Command. Now, aside from the fact that most people don't know what, you know, U.S. military commands are and how many they are and what they're doing and where they're operating around the world. But Southcom in particular is very problematic in the Caribbean. So, I mean, what do we have to pay attention to with uh, Southcom's involvement uh, in the Caribbean and, you know, the militarized white supremacy of, you know, the U.S. using uh, its military command in uh, Caribbean countries um, and and even promoting black neocolonialism. Right. And that's to me, that is a counter revolution. And this is what I think as black people, we need to take an honest look about what happened to decolonization and what and how we haven't been um you know, the movement for liberation really had a swift counter um, counter revolution come to it as soon as the 70s, because what happened was all the revolutionary leaders were killed. Right. They were assassinated on the African continent. We think about, you know, Sankara. If we think about, um, you know, uh, the Congolese leader. Oh, my God. Lumumba. Mm-hmm. And then we think about the Caribbean. Right. We think about who was assassinated. All these leaders assassinated and replaced by stooges right? By neo-colonial stooges. And so what we're seeing now is the result of the Western counter-revolution against, you know, liberation that Black people had after, you know, after the end of colonialism at the end of the 1960s. So we have to see it this way, because that's the only way we can explain what happened just last week, where the U.S. had military, the U.S., the U.K., uh, the U.S., England, Canada, France, and the Netherlands, Ran, ran joint military exercises with mostly Caribbean black countries through Southcom. What does that tell us when we have these black countries going into these exercises with their former colonial masters in order to scare places, supposedly scare places like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Bolivia? The only places that have had, have had asserted self you know, self-determination against the U.S. So what does this tell us, right? That these Caribbean nations are are, 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 are allowing themselves to be these stooges for these white supremacists, for, 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 for white supremacy, for Europe. And so what we, right, that, you know, that follow whatever Europe says and then allow themselves to be used as fodder because the U.S. is not going to, the whole point of this is not to use U.S. military 
people, it's not to use U.S. military, it's to use these militaries for these countries as proxy so that the U.S. can complete its geostrategic uh, plans. You know, and this reminds you, for example, in World War One and World War Two, there's no way, you know, Europe could have, quote unquote, defeated Nazism one without the soldiers from its colonies. And to me, this is what the proxy wars, wars that they're planning for in Africa, in the Caribbean and Latin America, that's what's going to do. Use the bodies of black and brown people to advance white supremacist imperialist goals in those areas. And, you know, Dr. Pierre, one of the things that uh, the U.S. imperialist apparatus and that that includes all of the allies of the U.S. when I say that, because I'm, I'm also glad that uh, Tarif, our caller, uh, uh, mentioned MI6 because we, we always talk about the CIA and I'm guilty of this, too. But but we all we often forget to uh, call out the uh, U.K., the British counterpart of the CIA, which is MI6. And that's important because Britain was the great imperialist nation before the United States was. Uh, So I think that's it's really important that we make it clear that it's not just the United States that's involved in these actions. It's the U.S. and its allies around the world. But one of the things they do is to use these phrases like Trans, they're, they're, they're there to uh, uh, to challenge or address the problems with transnational criminal organizations. We heard that in Venezuela, right? Or provide humanitarian assistance uh, or even disaster relief operations. Two phrases that we're hearing in Haiti and we've heard them before in Haiti. Um, but they're really just euphemisms for what the U.S. empire and its European allies uh, are doing. And it's really troubling to me that Guyana is a part of this, is a part of this, this, this effort. So could you explain to me the significance and the importance of Guyana being a part of this? Well, Guyana is, is interesting because it is, it's connected to Venezuela um, and and it's been in this uh, kind of uh, territorial uh, uh, territorial uh, contention with Venezuela over uh, this this territory. And I think part of the part of what's important about Guyana being there is because the U.S. will use the territorial um, conflict between Venezuela and Guyana to actually attack Venezuela. And I think that's what's important and significant and also um, very difficult to to understand because Guyana itself also has its own um, internal um, um, situation around ethnicity and and, and, and difference and, and, and so on and, and, you know, Indians and Africans. So we have to really be very careful when we're thinking about why it's allowing itself to be used because it will be used as proxy to try and topple Maduro in Venezuela. And for me, that's more significant than anything else, even though Guyana has a long history of, you know, Pan-Africanist cooperation and so on and so forth. So it is, it is an important, you know, I think we need to study that more. For me, I was just wondering why Guyana, but, but why Jamaica as well, right? Why why Jamaica? Why um, I'm thinking? Who else participated? It was uh, it was uh, it was Jamaica. Why Barbados? Mm. Right. And and then we have to think about you know Brazil. We know because they're 
you know, their leaders are racist. Um, but then you have Trinidad and Tobago, which is like the homeland for our, you know, Pan-Africanist, uh, you know, you know, ancestors, right? Like, you know, CLR James and, 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 and Kwame Toure, all these people. So why are all these places participating? Guyana makes more sense to me, but the other places don't make sense to me at all. Places like Jamaica and Trinidad. You know, and it's wild that the empire uses these excuses, especially the one about, you know, pursuing transnational criminal uh, uh, organizations when this country has the largest prison population on the planet. These politicians in this country are always talking about authoritarian regimes in this other country and, you know, brutal dictators in that other country and the repressive state over here. But the United States is what, 5% of the world's population, less than 10 for sure. And we're 24% of the prison population in the entire world. And, and when we're, when we think about it that way, Dr. Pierre, isn't this also an issue of dismantling the, the international internationally based carceral state and connecting the struggle for prison abolition in this country to the struggle against imperialism and uh, against, uh, uh, you know, these endless uh, U.S. and European wars uh, using, uh, you know, Caribbean countries like they are doing uh, to get to other countries that have struggled and fought for their liberation from the empire and are fighting, honestly, fighting like hell to hold on to that freedom. It's true. It is funny, though, because the U.S. is the biggest transnational terrorist organization in the world. Um, It is gangster um, and it is terrible, you know, in terms of like as a criminal organization, you know, this is the country that dropped a nuclear weapon two nuclear bombs on a civilian population killing hundreds of thousands and that continue to do these horrible things. And so if they're doing these horrible things, of course it makes sense that that's what they're doing here. You know, the, the, the war starts at home and comes back home, right. On, on the black and brown and indigenous populations. And so, and that's what people have to think about. Like, you know, the, the, one of the things that when we think about like the carceral, you know, logics of empire is, you know, when, the first thing that the, the U.S. government helped Haiti build after the 2010 earthquakes were two prisons, right? And you wonder, well, you know, you know, the Haitian National Palace is still hasn't still hasn't been rebuilt, you know, after 13 billion dollars worth of so-called aid, right? But they built they Canada and the U.S. built prisons in Haiti. That's what they do. And then what they do to uh, you know to get these neo-colonial puppets. You know, they fund these neo-colonial puppets so that and then these neo-colonial puppets can then use the funding and support from the U.S. to actually be terrible to their own populations. Right. So, you know, so then they can be repressive and so on and so forth. So I do think the U.S. is a gangster, um, uh, a criminal organization and 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 the, the most corrupt uh, you know, organization that we have in the face of this, uh, in, in this world. And we have to begin there because that's the only way we can understand, you know, how the, the logics of, you know, the, the, what, what they're doing out there, you know, comes home to us or comes from here and goes out there and then comes back. And then humanitarian assistance and disaster relief is also, you're absolutely right, euphemism. And, you know, I've always said this, you know, when, when Haiti, um, had the earthquake in 2010, the first thing Obama did was secure Haiti's airspace, 
right? Um, take over, not secure, they said secure. They took over Haiti's airspace, sent 22,000 soldiers, you know, with the Navy and had a Navy blockade. So they used Southcom. They had a Navy blockade around the island to stop Haitians from getting on the boats to come to the U.S., first of all. But they also thought there's going to be chaos and Haitians are just going to be killing people. And so their first response, you know, it's like if you are a hammer, you know, that's that's the thing you use. And their first response is a military. All logics go through this imperial mindset, the imperial white supremacist logic. And so no matter what, it's the military that comes first, no matter what the situation they think it is that they're doing, you know, that they're helping and, and so on out, out there. And humanitarianism is, 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 is a really, is, is a hidden, it's, it's a euphemism for really for white supremacy under, under other guises. Right. So you have, I always joke like, you know, the nonprofits, the NGOs, the international NGOs that use humanitarianism as a way to go into this country, it's all about them getting the money. It's about all these kids that are being, you know, getting degrees, BA degrees in development so that you know, they, they need jobs. And so they, you know, so they're pulled into this, this military machine to go into the other place, these other places and think that they're better than these people um, that they're there for. And so that they're because they're helping them. And I think all of that, you know, all the, the military industrial complex includes all these components, the carceral, the, you know, the academic and all of that stuff. And, and I think we can't look at these things as like individual topics. We have to look at all of them together. Absolutely. I want to talk more about Haiti on the other side of this break, but we will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. Uh, so please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, my friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. We continue to be joined by Dr. Jamima Pierre. And Dr. Pierre, you wrote an amazing piece in Black Agenda Report, which I, I, I just dropped this link to this uh, article in the Facebook chat and shout out to the Facebook chat and especially KD <laughs> for giving me really good information on the situation in Taiwan. Appreciate you very much. But this piece entitled once again, the vulture circle Haiti, you outlined a visit that you uh, took to Haiti in early 2010 where you went to a place called Club Indigo Hotel. And I'm going to stop right there because I want you to explain the contradictions that you saw going into Haiti, going to this particular place, and why those contradictions are important today after the, earth, uh, the earthquake uh, in Haiti, just a, a few weeks or a few days ago, I think it was last week, uh, that we're seeing again some of the same issues that we just talked about, the U.S. Uh, Southcom and the military presence in Haiti in 2010, uh, the blockade, uh, controlling airspace. 
What what did you see in 2010 that we need to understand when we realize that Southcom has been deployed to Haiti again to provide, quote unquote, humanitarian relief? <laughs> right. So <laughs> I have to I, I, I was shocked. You know, I went to Haiti um, 2010 days after that 2010 earthquake and people were still in the streets and, you know, people were afraid because there are tons of aftershocks. So everybody was sleeping in the streets, people who didn't have homes, as well as people who whose home may have been damaged and they didn't want to be there. But then at night, you know, we had some friends. Um, we went there with a, a local NGO and we had some friends who would take us at night to the, the elite areas, which is up the hill to this area called Pétionville. And it would be filled with white folks drinking, dancing, and so on, right? So that, that the contradiction was always there because Haitians are sleeping in the street, not having water or food. And then you go in there, it's like all these white people playing pool, drinking their liquor, and eating large, you know, plates of food. But I went back in April, and I decided, we decided, my, my friend was like, let me show you something. So we get in the car, and we drove to this uh, area called Montree, which is kind of north of Port-au-Prince. It's an hour out of Port-au-Prince. And we get there and it was a resort. And as soon as you get there, it's called Club Indigo. And somebody funnily calls it Club Indigo because of all the UN soldiers that are there all the time. And so there are just trucks, UN trucks. And I have to say, you know, people have to remember Haiti was wasn't still under occupation. This is during the occupation from 2004. So the UN was there in force like 12,000 soldiers already there. So we pull into this, uh, the, the Club Indigo. The parking lot is filled with UN trucks and all the other NGOs, you know, USAID, all of that. And then helicopters, UN helicopters parked on the grass, you know, of this resort. And I walked in, it was during lunch and it was like packed with food. Like there was a buffet and I've never seen that, you know, we live in the US and we've seen buffet. This was a buffet buffet, like, and I've never seen anything. And people were just lounging and, you know, playing volleyball and doing step aerobics. There's a pool and then there's a sea. And then I realized this, it was all mostly white people, a lot of young people uh, from non-government organizations, nonprofits, supposedly nonprofits, UN soldiers, all of them together, the humanitarian help supposedly for Haiti during this earthquake. They were just there chilling, hanging out and always, you know, doing there. And so even though the U.S. was talking about they were there to secure um, Haiti, these U.N. soldiers were chilling. They were, it wasn't about security. It was like about leisure. And and what it does tell us is that who benefit, and that was the point of this article, is like, well, who's going to benefit this time? Because who, and I point out who benefited the last time. And there are three groups of people who benefited from, um, from the, you know, from the earthquake. And the first is the foreign workers because they, you know, they were living large in Haiti. My mother, you know, after the earthquake on Saturday, you know, she texts me. She's like, yep, a lot of little whites are about to go to Haiti and become big whites. Because in Haiti, you can live like a queen, you know, like a king and queen, right? You can have this lifestyle paid for by so-called by eight dollars. Right. And so they, you know, they raised a lot of money, like the, you know, the Red Cross, as we all know, raised half a billion dollars and only built six homes. You had the USAID, you know, so all this money was coming in. Um, but then the next group is the people, for example, that own that resort. And and I know the family, you know, I know who they are. They're the MEVS, M-E-V-S, and they they own the land. And so part of that is this, the earthy was a bonanza for the oligarchy, the Haitian, the 
the the non-black Haitian oligarchy, because most of them are non-black and they're transnational elites. And they're the ones that own the lands, the ports, um, and and everything, you know, in, in Haiti that the 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 foreigners need. And so that Club Indigo, and I have to say, I was there the year before and it was falling apart. It had no occupancy. There were about like, I think maybe 20 or 30 people staying there. This time they're making all this money off of the rentals, you know, because they're able to rent out this resort to the aid apparatus. And so the elite made a killing. They got no bid contracts and so on and so forth. And then the third, of course, third biggest beneficiary of, of the earthquake was the U.S. government and the Europeans because there was a coup d'etat in 2004 led by U.S., France, and Canada. They brought in the U.N. to consolidate the coup d'etat. And it was after the 2000 earthquake and uh, through the U.N. that, you know, Haiti was vulnerable. The U.N. soldiers brought cholera right after, you know, after months after the earthquake. The U.S. forced elections. And that this is where we have the emergence of Michel Martelly, who they Hillary Clinton hand-selected. And the PHDK party that is still ruling Haiti because, you know, Moise was selected as well. And so for Western imperialism, the earthquake is really what brought us to this crazy political situation that we're in right now, where we have a handpicked, you know, a, a corrupt government that was handpicked by the U.S. and the Western community. So it's, you know, what, what I was trying to do is like the, the only people that did not benefit are the Haitian people. Right. It's like all these foreigners all the and then their oligarchy that you know that make their money off the foreigners, but also you know use us, use Haiti as their extraction, um, and then you know Western imperialism. So that's what I was trying to show in that article, and we can see it starting to happen again um, um, with this earthquake. You know, a couple of things um, you point out in your article, and I, I didn't even realize that this is this is what people call Haiti. Uh, that they don't call Haiti the Republic of NGOs for nothing. I had never heard that un, until I read your article. And that's that's just yeah, it it it, it explains, uh, you know, the 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 what you wrote in your article explains the the title. And then I, I want to remind people uh, that the American Red Cross remember uh, after the 2010 earthquake when. Uh, Obama and Bush and and Clinton got together and they did this these public service announcements raising money for Haiti and the American Red Cross raised five hundred million dollars allegedly for Haiti relief, humanitarian relief. And what did they do with it? They built six houses. They were not six mansions that housed hundreds of thousands of people. They were six small Haiti uh, houses in Haiti. And the rest of that money went into a bunch of folks' pockets in the Red Cross. So this is one of the reasons why I don't I don't mess with the Red Cross. That's just my thing. Not telling you what to do. But something else you point out in this article, uh, Dr. Pierre, I think speaks to something that I always say about who props up the props up this system, that we can't only pay attention to the folks at the top, the decision makers, the military brass, you know, the the politicians in Congress. We also have to question the folks on the ground who are carrying these actions out. You point out that you spoke to a 22 year old Australian who said he felt bad. He was uncomfortable uh, being there, considering that the people around him in Haiti, the Haitians were not 
given the same uh, opportunities and, and were not treated the same as as he was. But you po- you also pointed out that he must have been in the minority because, you know, everybody else was living it up. I mean, do do you feel like we pay too much attention to looking at leadership and what uh, leaders of these organizations do and we don't pay enough attention to the folks that are sitting behind the desks, to the folks who, like you pointed out in the article, um, you know, have a, a college degree that's not worth too much. They haven't done anything in their own countries. And then a disaster strikes and they they get to go on a, a you know, a leisurely vacation uh, to provide humanitarian aid. They don't do much. They get fed well. Um and they make a lot of money. Do, do we pay too much attention to the folks at the top and not enough attention to the people who are really the foot soldiers of imperialism? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say too much attention at the top because I don't think we pay enough attention to the people at the top. But I think we mm-hmm. need to also pay attention, equal attention to the people that do the work. You're absolutely right, because it's an entire apparatus. Right. So aid and development is not just, you know, the the warmongering Samantha Powers and the USAID. It is the universities who, do you know that one of the largest majors for undergrad in in a lot of universities is development studies? And you know what that means? It's not like they're studying development for U.S. communities. They're studying development to go work somewhere at a nonprofit or something to go help Africa or or someplace out, you know, a, a, a a dark country. Right. And, and I always ask my students, right. Cause I, you know, they're like, well, I'm getting this degree to, to go, um, to go help in Africa. And I'm like, well, you know, you could actually go down the street, you know, and, and, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and help out, you know, provide tarps to the homeless, you know, that people right. don't, the house. Right. But part of that, it is an apparatus. It's an ideological apparatus as well, because people seem to think that what the world needs is them going in there and, you know, you have, you know, there's horrible stories of like this white woman, for example, who went to East Africa and, and was pretending to be a doctor and like six kids died. Right. But she got away with it. She got to fly back to the U.S. because it's part of this humanitarianism apparatus. And I think we do need to point to all these people, the ideological factor, but also the educational institutions, because they are all white supremacists and they're all depending on this idea of the dark other who's too stu- who are too stupid to take care of themselves. You know, I, that, that's a great point right there. The, the fact that, you know, these nice young white kids who flock down to these countries and, and by down, I just mean on the other end of the hemisphere, not, you know, not ideologically, because that is the way they think of people in these countries. Oh, they you know, the, the the trope that we hear about Haiti all the time. And as a person of faith, unfortunately, I've heard a lot of this foolishness from Christians. Oh, Haiti is cursed because of voodoo. And right. Just like, no, Haiti is cursed because of imperialism. <laughs> Right. And then they never want to have that conversation because, of course, you know, there's there's the whole uh, uh, alignment with white supremacy in uh, Western Christianity. That's that's another, you know, battle that that, you know, where we have to continue to fight. But, you know, there there is this attitude among so many of these folks who go down, who, who go to these countries and say, well, they need our help. No, what they need is for you to leave them alone. Honestly, what what Haitians and Cubans and Venezuelans and and, uh, uh, you know, 
everybody on the continent of Africa. What they need is for this country and Europeans to leave them alone, because that is what self-determination is, Dr. Pierre. But self-determination of people of African descent, and that's people, that's most of the people around the world, in countries uh, that the U.S. and its allies invade and occupy and interfere in, that is the greatest threat to the empire, because what the empire is terrified of is that those countries will not choose capitalism to uh, uh, determine their futures. And if they don't choose capitalism, then that means they can't be exploited by the capitalists of the world, Dr. Pierre. You know, that, is ex- that, is, that is exactly right, which is why they spent so much time destroying, you know, bringing down, helping to bring down the fall of the Soviet Union because they know, you know, I think that was a major moment, right? And, the, you know, because all the new countries that were emerging out of colonialism, they were all having socialist ideology. They wanted to work for the betterment of the whole, not the individual. And the, the U.S., uh, you know, destroyed that. And I have to say something quickly, because what I do tell my students, like, if you really want to help, go tell that, go tear, burn down or tear down the IMF mm. and the World Bank and the U.S. military system. That's what you that's where you need to begin, not on the ground with the Africans, but with the IMF and their, and their lending policies and the financial, you know, the global financial structures. That's where we need to go and, 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 and change. You know, that's what I tell my students. <laughs> Well, you heard it from the good doctor. Don't say you heard it from Jacqueline Lukeman, but you know what? I concur. I absolutely concur with those instructions. But we are out of time for this segment on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. I want to thank Dr. Uh, Jamima Pierre so much for joining us, especially since we really need to continue to highlight what is going on in Haiti, in the Caribbean, especially with South Southcom being used as an excuse to expand U.S. militarism and imperialism under the guise of humanitarian aid and, uh, you know, confronting uh, uh, transnational criminal organizations uh, when the biggest criminal organization on the planet uses those kinds of terms, you know that they're up to no good trying to hide their crimes. So thank you so much, Dr. Pierre, for joining us to unpack these things. But we are done with the show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Jackie Lupman. You've been listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. But until then, we will see you next time. Be good to yourselves. Be good to each other. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.